This is NBA Sound System Live, featured on NBA.com sites around the world and archived on the NBA Sound System podcast feed, where you get your podcasts by searching NBA Sound System. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, each with the handle at NBA Sound System, or visit us at NBASoundSystem.com for more. Now, NBA Sound System Live. It is indeed NBA Sound System, L-I-V-E Live. Carlin Gay alongside Scott Rafferty. Every Tuesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, we rock and roll through the postseason and a postseason that has been pretty good, Scott. How are you doing, my man? I feel like I have a bit now. So so this week I'm doing better than Derek Favors, Colin. Um, so, so pretty well, all <laughs> things considered. How about yourself? Can't complain that the playoffs are here, and uh, we have a couple series that uh, are tied at two that are intriguing, and we'll get into those in a little bit. We'll also talk about the draft lottery, which is going down a week from today, Scott. A lot of teams on the outside looking into the playoffs. That is their championship, trying to get the number one overall <laughs> pick in the NBA draft. And the uh, all-defensive teams came out. We'll talk about our snubs from that very tough to crack list of 10 great defenders but first we got to start with the clippers uh they've climbed back in their series tying it up at two with the utah jazz and i gotta ask have the clippers finally turned the corner are they the team that you expected them to be it it feels like we were just talking about this because this series has played out almost the identical way that their first round series with the mavs did and also feels like a lot of the reasons that you would be encouraged by where the Clippers are right now or think that they've kind of cracked this code, I, I think it's for similar reasons. Like you you look at the fact they've once again committed to just going small and how that's kind of taken the Jazz out of their offense. It, it, it's interesting. I was looking at some of the numbers on Instat um, before recording today. And I mean, you, it, it, you can see a bunch of different things like how many isolation plays, how many pick and rolls the Jazz ran in that game. Um, and we don't have to go number by number, but essentially they ran a lot more isolation plays than they usually do and a lot less pick and rolls than they usually do. And that's because, again, the Clippers are just going small. They're switching pretty much everything one through five, and they're kind of taking the jazz out of what they like to do because all season long, it felt like you know a, a clip was going viral from one of their games of them just swinging the ball side to side, dumping it down low, Rudy Gobert on the roll, finding a wide open three-point shooter. And that kind of ball movement and rhythm was just not there in game four. And you got to credit the Clippers. I thought they were fantastic defensively in that game. And they were just swarming. They were everywhere. They were very active. And they did what they did what they needed to do to for this, this series to be at 2-2. But in terms of figuring this Jazz team out, I mean, we have to talk about Mike Conley, right? Because it's so much easier to play the Jazz this way when Conley isn't there because he's their secondary playmaker on the perimeter, a guy who, when they double Donovan Mitchell and take the ball out of his hands, Conley can make make a wide-open three or he can put the ball on the floor and find the open man or hit a floater or something like that. So I think, you know, they were able to win the first two games of this series without Mike Conley, but I think the last two in L.A., you really saw how much this team misses him. Yeah, it, it all really comes down for me uh, in this series to, as you said, the health of Mike Conley and uh, helping out what Donovan Mitchell um, can do. Because we, we, it's clear, Donovan Mitchell is a player. He's going to score points. He scored 30 points in, uh, I think, what is the last uh, nine games? Six games. Been in? Six, oh, six games. Yeah, something like that. 
Yeah, so he, he is balling. He's doing his part. And it's not to say that the other Jazz aren't stepping up. They are, they're having a, a game here or there, but they're just not able to elevate to the level where they need to be. Uh, and, and, you know, Donovan Mitchell can only do so much. And it's really the times when he sits that things sort of collapse. And uh, that's that's been all playoff long, really, for, for the Utah Jazz. If you look at it, you know, with Donovan Mitchell on the floor, the Jazz are outscoring teams five point four points per 100 possessions when he's off the floor they're almost being outscored by seven points uh per 100 possessions in those last two games in uh in in la that uh, tied the series up it's drastic when donovan mitchell sits he's only sat he only sat for 24 minutes over those two games (laughs) he sat and uh they were being outscored by 42.4 points per 100 possessions that's a lot of points uh that's tough hole to dig yourself out of and it and it's and you can see it it's not just the numbers that tell you that. You can see it. You can feel it. It's like the minute Donovan Mitchell hits the bench, the 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 Clippers sort of perk up and say, "All right, this is our chance to either extend the lead or, or dig out of a lead or a hole." And the Jazz just kind of look and say, "Well, come on, Quinn. When, when's when's he going to walk back to the scores table here where we're getting our butts beat?" And they they really can't get back into the game. It's almost a little bit of a mental thing. And I think if Mike Conley is able to come back. And, and be healthy, close to healthy as possible. Who knows with the hamstring? You, you just really don't know, and we'll talk about that, uh, a different hamstring in a different series a little later. But who knows with this hamstring if Mike Conley can get back to being normal? But I think just his presence on the floor will, will just calm things down for the Jazz because they'll have a playmaker, or a, a, someone that could not only score for himself but get others easier looks because when Donovan Mitchell leaves the floor, they just don't have anybody else. And they do have good playmakers. Joe Ingles is a good playmaker. Uh, Jordan Clarkson is a good playmaker for himself. Bogdanovich is a better playmaker than I think people give him credit for. But it just it, they, they don't, they're not elite playmakers. And in the playoffs, you need elite playmakers to find other people easy looks. And to your point, the Jazz's second most used lineup this season was... Mike Conley, Rudy Gobert, Jordan Clarkson, Georges Niang, and Joe Ingles. So basically, you know, they're starting five without Donovan Mitchell. And it was the second most used lineup, and they obliterated teams. They had a net rating of 15.0. They were actually better offensively than their normal starting five, and even better defensively. And by no means does that mean that that lineup is better than when, when right. Mitchell is in there, because that's not the case. But that goes to show, like, they, they did lean on, like, the Conley without Mitchell lineups pretty heavily this season, and they were really yeah. successful. And the other thing is, when Conley comes back, or if he does come back in the series, it moves Joe Ingles back to the bench in that six-man role, six-seventh-man role that he played all year long. And at that point, he could be the true playmaker for that second unit, and that's the role he kind of played in all all year long as being that secondary playmaker with that second unit. But when he's on, you know, starting, he's playing big minutes, and then he has to kind of orchestrate what the second unit does. He gets worn out as much as Mitchell has. Well, and defensively, too. He's chasing around Paul George, and that's just what makes this Clippers team so difficult is that when they're firing all cylinders, they're moving the ball around themselves. They've got five three-point shooters on the court basically at all times right now, and they have, however you want to put it, a top five player in the league and a top 20, top 25 player, Um, and both of them played fantastic in game three and four. And and when the Clippers are doing that, I mean, they're tough. There's a reason that... I know you're not as high on them as I am, um, I and that's by so. no means. I'm by no means saying like this is the best team in the league right now. But that, given the way that they have have looked, especially in moments in these playoffs, given the makeup of this team, I mean, I, I really do think this team could win the championship this season. I don't think that's a hot take or anything. So, 
I mean, yeah, this is just a really good team. That That's ultimately what it comes down to. And I think we're kind of just, again, the Conley thing aside, we're kind of seeing some of the concerns with this Jazz team during the regular season, I think, come, come to surface. Um, but again, we're, with Conley, that probably wouldn't look nearly as bad. Yeah, it's a little unfair to really judge this Jazz team uh, because I think a lot of people will do that. You know, oh, this is a regular season team. It was built like a regular season team. It'll be very successful in the 82-game season. But once they get into the 16-game season, it's going to look a little different because Donovan Mitchell has to do so much and everything. And Rudy Gobert can't give you so much offensively and there's ways to slow him down. But I think if Mike Conley is in the lineup, this is a very different series. The, the, the things, some of the things that the Clippers are taking away from the Jazz, it, it just doesn't look as poorly as it does with Mike Conley. Like George Niang's now in positions where they're, they're looking for him to make plays. And no, no disrespect to George Niang, love him. He had a great college career at Iowa State, uh, but he's not Mike Conley. I, look, I, you know, and he, he's never going to be Mike Conley. Look, there's a reason Mike Conley was an all-star this season. And sure, he right. was an injury replacement, but he's been in the all-star conversation basically his entire career. If he hadn't made it this season, he would have been the best player probably in NBA history to never make an all-star game. Like, there's a reason for that. Um, his yeah. numbers might not jump off the page, but he fills in all the gaps on both ends of the court. The things he does well, he does at a really high level. And he's just kind of the guy that every team in the, every team in the league would want on their, on their roster because of what he does. So, yeah, you take that off. And, and that's been... I mean, to be honest, that's been a theme this entire playoffs. Like, Conley, I don't think, is the second best player on that team. However you want to order it, it's Gobert and Mitchell, the top two. But if you take the second or third best player off any team right now, um, they're, they're going to suffer in some way. And it's just unfortunate that's kind of happened in this series for the Jazz. Yeah. I, before we move on, I, I, I'd want to ask this one question about the Jazz. And I'm just going to leave it out there. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to, Scott. But I'm just mm -hmm. going to leave it out there. This series, I think, is telling a lot of people uh, within the Jazz organization, I think Jazz fans as well, they absolutely love Rudy Gobert, but they're going to have to answer a question going forward. Can they truly win at a high level when your best player is being able, it can go into series the way that he is and be a kind of uh, minimized, so to speak, um, as drastically as he has been. That, that is going to be a question I think the Jazz are going to have to answer, and, and Jazz fans are going to start asking if they lose this series. Right now it's tied at two. Um, you know, Scott picked the, the, the Clippers to come out of this one. I did pick the Jazz to come out of this one, so we'll figure it out in the next uh, two out of three games. Uh, I do want to spend some time talking about Kawhi Leonard before we move on to the series from the series completely because the dude is bawling right now. Kawhi Leonard is looking great. I know he came up lame a little bit in that in the, at the end of that game with that. Uh, it looked like he was grabbing at his knee. They sat him down. The game was out of reach, so he didn't have to come back in. So we really don't know. And post game, all the sound said he's going to be fine. So I expect him to be fine. But outside of that, there hasn't been any worry with Kawhi Leonard. 30 points per game. Uh, he's shooting 57.3% from the field, Scott. Um, that is a career high in the playoffs for him. And, I mean, it's like he doesn't miss. He's almost shooting 40% from three. The only time he actually does miss is he's shooting 88% from the free throw line. <laughs> That's the only time he does miss, right? Get him at the free throw line, he might he might miss something. And even that's pretty good, all things considered. It's great. Um, it's, it's pretty wild. So I, I went on StatHead because you can find anything there. Um, but I, I plugged in. I was like, all right, in NBA playoffs history, who's averaged 30 points per game in, in a playoff run and ordering it by true shooting percentage, which combines two-point field goals, three-point field goals, and free throw percentage. So it kind of is an all-encompassing shooting metric. And right now, Kawhi averaging 30.4 points per game on a true shooting percentage of 67.9%. 
That's the second most efficient anyone's shot while averaging. Sorry, the third most efficient anyone's ever averaged 30 points per game in a playoff run. And the only two players ahead of him are Donovan Mitchell from last season, and that was seven games. Mm -hmm. And the person in second place is Reggie Miller back in 92-93, and he got swept. It was only four games. So Kawhi's played 11 games at this level now. And to your point, it just looks like he's getting anywhere he wants. Um, He's absolutely automatic from mid-range. I wrote a story today about how he's kind of just destroying teams in isolation, and he's shooting over 60% from mid-range and that's not like a low volume kind of thing like this is one of the best mid-range shooters in the league uh he, he just can't miss from there he's hitting pull-up threes at like basically the best rate in his career and oh by the way like he can still get to the basket and as we saw with Derek Favors which I alluded to at the at the start like I mean that that is Kawhi Leonard's best dunk of his career in my mind I don't think it's even close so he's just it feels like he's firing an all cylinders offensively defensively Obviously, he's had his moments guarding Luke in the first round, going against Donovan Mitchell in this second round. Um, I mean, it feels it's it's funny. It feels like, and it speaks to the talent that there is in the league right now. But it feels like every single night, NBA Twitter is talking about a different player being MVP of the playoffs to this point. But I think if Kawhi Leonard is not number one, he's number two. Like he he's been he's been that good. And you think about what he's been able to do to get the Clippers to this point, coming back from 2-0 against the Mavericks, coming back from 2-0 against the Jazz. And I think right now I do feel a bit more comfortable with the Clippers advancing out of this series than I do the Jazz. Um, and that's not to count the Jazz out, but I, I just think that the Clippers are quite clearly in the driver's seat right now. So yes, it would have been nice to kind of see him and the Clippers put the, their foot on the pedal a little bit earlier in both series. But what he's been doing individually and the effect that it's had on this team, I mean, he's having another all-time run um and his numbers match up pretty well with what he did with the raptors a couple years ago but he's just being even more efficient yeah he he, he's been special offensively the one knock you can say is that defensively he probably doesn't have the level of uh you know being able to shut things down the way he did two years ago with the toronto raptors but he may not have to because he has a a really good defensive team around him uh and a coach in tyloo that is pulling the right strings to put them in a good situation and i'm not saying the Kawhi is bad defensively i don't want that to be uh, misconstrued there i'm just saying that he he's not the two-time defensive player of the year that he once was the guys are still able to score on him in in ways that uh uh, they shouldn't if, if if this was prime Kawhi, or they wouldn't be able to if this is prime Kawhi. Prime example of that is Donovan Mitchell. He's, he's been Kawhi's guarded him a couple of times, and Donovan Mitchell has made plays and made buckets in this series that most of them have come in the first two games. Uh, but the, I mean, it's it is kind of you know you're like oh well Donovan Mitchell could get past him. Um, he must be a pretty good offensive player, and he is. So uh, anyone else, anytime Joe Ingles is guarded by Kawhi, it's, it's complete shutdown city. Um, you know, Jordan Clarkson can't do anything against Kawhi Leonard. So it really does take a level of, of Donovan Mitchell or Luka Doncic to make Kawhi, uh, you know, struggle a little bit defensively. And I say struggle in, in the kindest way possible because no one's guarding those guys at the level that they're, they're playing at. So um, if that's the only knock I can give him, he, he is playing a, as great basketball. And, and it is amazing to see him. Um, you know, it looks like he's he I, I, I won't say it's please playing his best basketball ever. But he's he's in a zone right now that is rivaling uh, any zone he's ever been in before. It, this these eleven games have been in, in, incredible, and the more they win, the more he'll get credit for it. So I don't want to say that he's been flying under the radar because he hasn't. But the more they win, he he'll uh, he'll definitely get the recognition for it that he deserves. So uh, Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers they're tied tied at two. That next game goes down on Wednesday. Uh, that is a critical game set game five I should say. Uh, in Utah, and if they're able to win that, I think it's curtains for the Jazz, even though I've picked them in the series. 
Uh, on the other side of the bracket, it is a tied series between the Atlanta Hawks and the Philadelphia 76ers. Uh, the Hawks with a gutsy performance in the fourth quarter in game four. Trey Young didn't have it shooting-wise. He just, he just was missing the mark, but he found different ways to contribute. I said it on this podcast. I thought that game four would be very telling for what I think Trey Young could become uh, as an NBA player. I thought that, you know, games two and three, he would see things that he would have to adjust to, and he did. And in game four, he had to figure out how to be effective given those adjustments. The the Philadelphia 76ers, for my money, Scott, are the best defensive team left in the playoffs. They have the most versatility defensively. They have the most length. They have the most size. When they're healthy, Danny Green, when they're completely healthy, Danny Green just gives them another element as well. Um, they're tough to score against, and Trey Young and the Hawks have figured out a way to put up points against this really good defense. Uh, all the credit in the world to him, but I can't help but feel like the Sixers might have given away the series or at least extended the series unnecessarily by giving away that game. Do you feel the same way? Did the Sixers shoot themselves in the foot in game four? And by the way, the the Knicks were a top five defensive team in the league this season and they, they weren't great offensively so i feel like they didn't look as good in that first round as as probably people expected them to but for trey to do that against the knicks in the first round and then this to the 76ers in the second round um is, is super duper impressive i look it, it's it's hard for me uh, to answer that question because ultimately this all comes down to joel and beats health and you look, he, he really struggled in the second half of that game, too. ESPN's Kurt Goldsberry um, had the stat that he went 0 for 12 in the second half, and that's the most attempts in a half without a make over the last 25 postseasons. And he, he just, even before game four, um, I, I wrote, I, I kind of thought it was between going back to the whole MVP of the playoffs thing, like between him and Kevin Durant was the MVP for me. And I wrote like, this is a guy who dominated the first round, then he got injured. And then since he's come back, he's shown no signs of that injury. Like he's been even more dominant. And I think that game four was the first time that we, it was clear that he was kind of battling a knee injury. He talked about it after the game saying things like he had no lift and obviously his knee was bothering him. And you saw the results. And this team is just not the same. If Joel Embiid is not 100% on both ends of the court, he is without a doubt the best player. We've gone over the on-off splits before when he's on the floor, what the 76ers do. And that just sp- speaks to how impactful he is. So, I mean, that's that was the biggest thing going to this series was Joel Embiid's health. And I think after game four, the way that played out and for him in the second half, um, I mean, if he can't kind of bounce back to the play that he was in games one through three, yeah, like absolutely, I- I'm worried about the 76ers because they were able to kind of take care of business against the Wizards without Embiid in those, that last game, that closeout game. But uh, this Hawks team is is completely different, and they will take full advantage if Embiid is not kind of, as I said, firing all cylinders. He did pull down 21 rebounds. He was tough to, fa- you know, uh, pulling down rebounds uh, at a high rate. As you said, struggle from the four floor. He went four for 20 from the floor. A lot of those makes, came, well, all of those makes came in the first half. Did not make a single bucket in the second half. Still finished with 17 points. He got to the line and uh, was able to do his thing. But it's a big drop off from the 39 that we saw in game one, the 40 that we saw in game two, and even the 27 that we saw in game three. This is eerily reminiscent, Scott to the way that he sort of just fell off a cliff production-wise in 2019 in the series against the Toronto Raptors, where he started that series uh, with a loss, then played really, you know, two tough games 
uh, back-to-back. They blow the Raptors out by 21 in Game 3. Uh, he had 33 in that game, and then after that, it was a struggle for him until Game 7 where he played decent but still uh, you know, shot horribly from the field. Um, and, and this has a similar feel where he just progressively got tired as the series went along uh, because he was expending so much energy. And I was very shocked to see the way that he was able to play given the knee injury in the first three games of this series. Uh, and, you know, it, 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 the wear and tear on his body is is going to catch up to him. And it, it really scares me from a Sixer standpoint because they knew, that team knew that he, they needed someone else to step up and no one did. Um, you know, Tobias Harris, I, I, I'm still looking for him. He's on a milk carton. He, he was nowhere to be found in game four. Nowhere to be found. Yes, he had 20 points, but those 20 points were as quiet a 20 that you can get in an NBA playoff game. Um, I, I, had, I felt like, you know, Furkai and Korkmaz's 10 points were louder than the 20 that Tobias Harris had. I felt like Steph Curry's 17 were much louder than the, the 20 that Tobias Harris had. And and Ben Simmons, I mean, they, uh, there's there comes a point where, you know, I, I'm normally on the uh, the other side of Ben Simmons where, you know, I, I, I don't crush him as much as other people do for not having uh, the jump shot, for, for being a zero in, in clutch time situations. But yesterday, when his partner was ailing, he really didn't give you much. You know, his stats are going to look fine because he finished with 11, 12, and 9. But it, 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 you, just, you just look at the game, and as he was going through, it, there was never a moment where he said, I'm the second best player on this team. Let me be the best player on the court for the next three minutes. There just wasn't much of that. And he did a good job defensively shutting down Trey Young. I have to give him credit for that because Trey Young had a tough time, uh, you know, getting getting shots. Yeah, and scoring. Um, But that's not enough. When you are an all-star, when you are the second best player on this team, you have to be uh, more of an impact player on the offensive end, and he he just wasn't. And even including to the point where uh, there were stretches in the late in that game where Doc Rivers just flat out sat him. Um, you know, that's that's a tough situation to be in when you're an all-star, second-best player in the team, and you're being sat in, you know, in, in, in situations where they're looking for a good shot offensively. He, he just has to give him more. But I'm more upset at Tobias Harris because that 20 was as quiet a 20 you'd have in a playoff game. I will, I will say on the Simmons front, I think the, the more frustrating thing for me is that he, he was that player that I think you wanted to see in game four, in game three of the series. Um, that they, they really went at him in the post because of the way that the Hawks were defending Joel Embiid. And he had a really good basically quarter, quarter and a half in that game that kind of propelled them to victory. And it's almost like you wanted him to do the same in game four, but he just wasn't able to. So um, to help your, your Tobias Harris point, by the way, I think he only had six points in the second half. So he scored 14 of his Scott, 20 in the first he had- half. Scott, he had two shots. He took two shots in the fourth quarter, did not score a point, and grabbed one rebound in 10 minutes of fourth quarter action. This is this is Tobias Harris here. This is the guy who they gave up. They gave up Jimmy Butler for, essentially. Um, 10 minutes of play. He played the most minutes in the entire fourth quarter for the Sixers. He took two shots and had one rebound. Right. Uh, Shake Milton had, had four shots off the bench in six minutes. So uh, that's not probably a great trend for the 76ers if Tobias Harris is only taking two and ten minutes and Shake Milton's taking four and six minutes. But, um, I, I mean, we just said the same thing with the Jazz. I think this is some of the concerns that I had for the 76ers kind of going into the playoffs is that as good as they were on both ends of the court during the regular season, I kind of worried about 
you know, what, what, what does this team look like when Joel Embiid really isn't able to get to his spots and just completely physically dominate the opposing team? Or if he has a down night, like who is the other person that's going to step up? And there's also some, ro- some rotational things as well. Like you saw it down the stretch of that game. There were a couple just really awkward possessions when Ben Simmons and Matisse Tybel are out there. Two guys who, I mean, aren't really, they're not scorers. Um, and Matisse Tybel will shoot threes, but that's kind of a shot that opponents will let him take. And it just, the spacing's not great and it looks awkward offensively. So, um, I mean, to, to your point, it, it, Joel Embiid needs to be better. Um, I think he... There, there is some excuse there given his knee and you hope that he can be 100% or 90% or whatever moving forward in this series. But they absolutely need more out of Tobias Harris in those situations and Ben Simmons too. Um, and like you, I, I, I don't criticize Ben Simmons as much as a lot of other people because he's a fantastic defender. He's one of the best passes in the league. He does all the little things that you kind of want. But it, it is those moments when Joel Embiid is, is not able to do his thing that you, you would like to kind of see him step up. Because he's shown time and time again in the past that he, he, he does have that in him. He just doesn't do it consistently enough. The one saving grace for the, the Philadelphia 76ers is the fact that they play great defense. Um, they yep. are, a, a, like I said, they, I think in my in my opinion, they're the best defensive team remaining in the postseason. As bad as they looked in that fourth quarter, and they were four for 16 from the field in the fourth quarter. Um, they were awful. They, they just couldn't get a basket. The Hawks were only 8 for 24 in the fourth quarter, shot 33% in that fourth, and barely won, won by three points in that fourth quarter. Defense is going to keep the Sixers in a lot of the games, and that's where you know you can see a path to where they're going to be able to get to the finals and, and potentially win an NBA title. But if no one, if no one is going to give Joel Embiid any help, um, it, it, it's going to be tough. He, he can't carry the load uh, the way he's been carrying it. Uh, you know, so far in the postseason, they they really walk through Washington because Washington wasn't a, a talented team. They're not going to be able to walk through the Hawks, and as we see, it's now a tie, tied you know, a tied at two, and you know the the, the the best two out of three are here with the rest of the series on the table. If Joel Embiid is not going to be able to to elevate the way that he was in Game One, Game Two, and even Game Three, and he's going to slow down a little bit, then you know Tobias Harris has to be better. And his points have to be more impactful, especially in the fourth quarter, because I think that's where Joel Embiid is going to have a tough time scoring is he's already tired. The Hawks know what they want to do to to kind of junk the game up a little bit and force other players on the Sixers to beat them. And if that's Shake Milton, okay, you know, and and they lose to Shake Milton, I think they'll take that. But, uh, you know, Tobias Harris just can't have no two shots, no buckets and, you know, one rebound. Uh, you got to affect the game in a different way. And if you're Ben Simmons, you didn't shoot at all in the fourth quarter. You only grabbed one rebound and had one dime. Um, that That's another, you know, we, we talk about all the other things that he does outside of scoring. You can't have a fourth quarter where you have ones across the board. I'm sorry, Ben Simmons. You just can't when the game's on the line. So that's uh, this is the series now. The Hawks feeling good about themselves. And, and credit to the, the Hawks as well because they're a young oh, team. Yeah. Very gutsy performance out of them. They weren't making shots. They they were they felt like their offense was in the mud the entire time, and rightfully so. It's a really good defensive team they're playing against. Trey Young didn't have it going. They had to figure it out, and, and Trey Young was able to get you know the ball moving and and, and finding shots for players. And um, Bogdan Bogdanovich, man, that's that's a guy that uh, he. I think he's opening a lot of eyes 
uh, that didn't get to see him play in Sacramento. He took a lot of big-time shots in Sacramento and the few wins that he was a part of in that franchise when he was there. And now seeing him in the playoffs, he's not as scared. He's not He's not afraid oh, of the moment. He's fearless. He's not afraid of the moment. And he's a better defender than I think people are giving him credit for. Um, so shout-out to Bogdan and, and, and that uh, Hawks team for, for pulling through. Um, and let's see. That's going to be interesting for Game 5, especially with the, uh, the health uh, of, of Joel Embiid kind of in the balance there for for that series um speaking of health we have to do this one quickly because this this uh brooklyn nets milwaukee bucks series has taken a turn uh in the favor of the milwaukee bucks we're not going to take too much time talking about it because for the people that listen to this on the podcast side they may have already seen the game with the game happening tonight as we record on a tuesday um there is word we got breaking news um you know hours before we recorded here uh, and, and for those listening live, they already know as well, uh, James Harden may play in Game 5 uh, coming back from the hamstring injury that he left you know, 40-something seconds into the series with. And that would be a great sign if Harden is able to play for the Nets. But the version of Harden is so important because this Bucks team is now confident. Um, they, they, they need, uh, they being Brooklyn, they need to get game five if they don't i think the series is over in six um and it all really depends on how healthy harden could look and how much he can help kevin durant if he does play yeah and we i mean it is weird to think that yesterday um as a recording yesterday they they he was ruled out and then he goes from um i think it was what questionable uh no it was he it probable to no questionable to probable or whatever it was um so they've upgraded him twice now which seems kind of like a weird weird ton of events here but um i mean the reality is we have no idea kind of what harden's going to look like how he's going to be we saw what anthony davis was like in that first round series against the suns when he kind of came back from the groin injury with his team kind of their backs against the wall and what he looked like and obviously this is a different injury but also harden missed quite a lot of time this season with this hamstring injury that he's dealing with once again and i think if you're brooklyn you know the way that he played in that first round series against the boston celtics that's reason for optimism because he he only played two regular season games after missing a bunch of time and then went into that series and he was incredible um looked like the james harden of old again so maybe you know if he if he does play in game game five they will have that version but there's just no way of knowing because he's only going to have missed three games after tweaking it again he missed a bunch of time earlier in the season and hamstring injuries are just that they're tough like it's it's easy to to aggravate them it's a it's a lingering injury it feels like one of those that you need to take a lot of time off for it to really get get good and the way that james harden plays too the way that he decelerates do you know what i mean the pace that he plays with like any basketball player um will feel the effects of a hamstring injury but i think in particular for for someone like him in the way that he plays so ultimately you just hope that james harden is in good enough health you hope that they're not you know he he doesn't feel the need to to rush back he's not putting himself in jeopardy by playing in this game if he does um but i mean yeah it's it's a tough time for the nets right now they they looked like they were going to run away with this series through the first two games but I think the theme of this playoffs has been it's it's incredible how quickly things can change. It's uh, I know Kevin Durant hates this uh, hate the hates the legacy talk, but it's a big legacy game for Kevin Durant win lose or draw. Is um, it? I'm I, I'm not, I'm not putting the win. I, I don't think it hurts his legacy, but I think it helps his legacy. Um, so it's only favorable for okay. him if he was able if he's able to win this game. 
um, you, you could just add to the resume that he that he's that he has a comp, you know, already uh, accumulated over the years. It's not going to hurt his legacy. His legacy is what it is. He's a Hall of Fame player, but it just adds to the legend of Kevin Durant if he's able to get this game with a compromised James Harden with Kyrie out. Um, you know, must win game tied at two with a Bucks team that seems like they're figuring it out and, and, and kind of flipping the switch. Um, this would be a great story to tell when he's retired that he said, you know, we walked into the belly of the beast in a game five and I went crazy and was able to get the, a big time win and get us a three, two lead. So um, be interesting to see what happens tonight uh, for, for those who are listening live. And for those who have already seen it, probably already know the result and we may look silly with, uh, <laughs> with whatever we just said <laughs> regarding it. Um, what we are way ahead of is the NBA draft lottery, Scott. Next Tuesday, it is the draft lottery for teams that uh, did not qualify for the postseason. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot on the line, and you wrote a, a terrific article over on NBA.com, um, just highlighting some of the big storylines heading into the draft lottery for uh, a bunch of teams. Um, when when you were kind of going through it, I I, th- I think you. Uh, on the assignment, I, I think you you probably didn't realize how much is at stake for so many franchises now in this lottery that's we're a week away from um, coming out of it. What's some of the biggest storylines that you you really sort of like? Oh, that that's interesting. That uh, that might change or shift the balance of power, or at least kickstart a rebuild that we didn't see coming. Yeah, I mean, I got a headache writing that article because all, all the numbers looking it up and all the possibilities. Like it, the, the lottery is just insane. But um, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what plays out because there's there's a lot at stake for the for the teams that didn't make the playoffs this season. I think you look at a team in the Raptors who are getting their a lottery pick for the first time. What since I think it's 2016 when they when they selected Jakob Pertl, and as disappointing of a season as they had, you know, potentially potentially adding like a top four pick in this draft. Um, to their core, Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi. We don't know what's going to happen with Kyle Lowry, but if you add kind of a top five talent in this draft, um, potentially even the number one pick to that core, like I think they're going to be able to kind of pick up the pieces pretty quickly going into next season. But uh, beyond them, I mean, the, 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 I think the, the two most interesting teams going into the draft are the Thunder and the Magic. And I'm not going to go through all the possibilities, but there is a chance that both those teams will have two lottery picks. Um, so like the Thunder, who I think already have one of the more interesting young um, calls or some of the most interesting young prospects in the league, could in theory have two top six picks in this draft. And the same thing for the Magic. And the Magic don't have like a Shea Gilgis Alexander they can build around. But if they add two top tier talents, that's going to that's gonna really accelerate their rebuild. And, um, you know, potentially the biggest storyline going into the lottery is is what happens to the Timberwolves pick. Because if you remember, they uh, the Timberwolves traded a pick to the Golden State Warriors um, that right. was top three protected in that Wiggins-D'Angelo Russell deal. So if right. it's in the top three in this draft, the Timberwolves, the, the Timberwolves uh, they, they keep it and they get to add another young talent to their core. But uh, if it falls outside of the top three, that's going to the Warriors. And that's just, again, that's fascinating as well because they missed out on the playoffs this season. But I think Steph proved to everyone that he's still an MVP caliber player. You get Clay Thompson back. Who knows what he's going to look like from that injury. But I think knowing what we do about Clay, I have pretty... Uh, pretty high faith that he's going to be a very good player again and Draymond Green offensively obviously has fallen off but he's still a terrific defender so you know what do they do with that pick do they trade it do they do they draft someone do they do they pair it with James Wiseman and, and, and get aggressive in the trade market so th- those are kind of the three big storylines that I'm I'm interested in seeing that going into the lottery but um yeah you can see all the 
the possibilities in my article on NBA.com. As I said, I had a headache putting it together because there's there's so many <laughs> different possibilities, but that's also what makes the lottery fun. Yeah, it's it's interesting that the most likely pick for the Minnesota Timberwolves is going to be number seven, I believe. Um, they are uh, <laughs> that that would go to the Golden State Warriors if that is the case. Um, that's I mean that that's the pick that I'm most uh, going to be looking forward to seeing where it lands. This, the Warriors end up with another you know top end draft pick to add to their core. They're getting Clay back. They're getting James Wiseman back. Um, and then they're going to have some pieces that they can say, all right, let's let's go and get in maybe an available disgruntled superstar that we can now pair with Steph and, and Clay and, and Draymond and we'll get right back in business. Um, you know, if they were to give up a Wiggins and someone else, because uh, Wiggins' contract could match any big time contract there is out there. So that would be interesting. I'm going to do something uh, right now. I'm going to go and take a thon and I'm going to sim the lottery and see what we get here, Scott. <laughs> I'm going to sim the lottery. What's your what's your prediction? Give me your prediction. Uh, who, who ends up with the number one pick in your uh, in your assessment before I push the sim here? Well, I was going to say, by the way, the the fascinating team is the Rockets as well, because there's basically a 50% chance of them getting a top four pick and a 50% chance of them falling to five. And if they fall to five, that pick goes to the Thunder. So that that's very interesting. But um, I, I think for maximum chaos and also being someone who writes for NBA Canada, let, let's go with the Raptors getting the number one pick and just shaking the lottery up completely. Pick. All right, I'm predicting that the Cleveland Cavaliers somehow, some way, again, get a number one pick. That, that's see, honestly see probably the safest bet based on history. Get, get, Guess what? The Cleveland Cavaliers got it. <laughs> Cleveland Cavaliers end up with the one, number one pick. Of course. The Thunder end up with number two. The Raptors, number three. The Orlando Magic uh, end up four. And then you predicted it. The Houston Rockets lose their pick number five to OKC. So OKC in this scenario would end up with picks number two and number five uh, in this draft. Uh, Detroit has six. And the Golden State Warriors give up uh, get the, uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves pick at number seven. So uh, that's that's and then the rest of it shakes out the way it, uh, it, it's supposed to shake out. Orlando also gives up their pick to uh, or Orlando gets a Chicago pick at eight and then mm-hmm. everything else falls into place. So that would be interesting if the Thunder were able to get two top five picks um, and then you add it to what they already have with uh, Shea Gilders Alexander and Poku and uh, Lugans Dort and, uh, you know, that young core uh, that they're building in Oklahoma City. Um, and we know that Sam Presti is not afraid to pull the trigger on a big time deal. Again, if you're, t- you're thinking about, you know, this Grundle star, maybe we can go and get someone because we can't get them in free agency. That would be a uh, very intriguing uh, having two top five picks, especially in this draft that is supposedly uh, pretty deep. And from some of the you know stuff that I've read from uh, our draft experts, Eric Fawcett and Kyle Irving, um, this is a, a draft that you probably get you know down to ten before you start seeing um, you know you, you kind of shrug your shoulders and hope that you know prospects turn out, and that's normally a good sign. Absolutely, and even the Thunder this season. I mean, they. they I think it's fair to say they kind of tanked down the stretch there, but um, the, when Shea was healthy in particular, like they were a pretty competitive team and they were hovering around 500. And Shea Way really made the leap. Many people thought. Yeah, exactly. And Shea, I think he he wasn't. I feel like on a lot of people's all star radar, but he he made that jump into kind of an all star caliber player. And yeah, to your point, if you add two top five or six players in this draft to that, they've already got one of the best perimeter defenders in Lou Dort, Poku. Who knows what he's going to be? But he could. <laughs> I think he could be anything based on what we know about right. him right now. So yeah, th- I mean, they were a fascinating team this season, especially in the first you know forty fifty games. Um, so they, I, I think they could be depending on how the pick. Pong balls for I think they could be the the big winners of the lottery 
And they still have Al Horford uh, on the yep. roster that they can uh, figure out how to uh, turn him into assets. Stan Presti's pretty good at that. Um, and they got a billion draft picks in the future that they could also. <laughs> that's the thing, too. It's crazy. Know, actual assets as well. So uh, that's the draft lottery. It's going to be exciting next Tuesday. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the actual prospects uh, on next Tuesday's show. Um, spend some time talking about there because there's, there's a lot of intriguing ones um, that, you know, we'll figure out maybe where they'll land in uh, after that draft lottery is done next Tuesday. Uh, I think it's on ESPN ahead of the Western Western or Eastern Conference Finals, whatever conference finals ESPN has, but it's a, it'll definitely happen uh, next Tuesday at 8.30 Eastern time. All right, uh, the all-defense. We talked about Lou Dort. The all-defensive team came out uh, yesterday, and um, any snubs? Any snubs in your opinion? Let's uh, let's go let's go through the list of who actually made the team. First team all defense: Rudy Gobert, Ben Simmons, Draymond Green, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and uh, Drew Holiday. And all, all defensive second team featured a pair of Miami Heat players: Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, Joel Embiid, Tobias, or sorry, uh, Matisse Thybul, <laughs> and. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, no Tobias Harris on the on the all defensive team, but Matisse Tybal did make it. So three Sixers make it, two Heat players make it, uh, two Bucks make it, and we have one Jazz and one Warrior, and uh, and obviously Kawhi feels like he's always going to be there. So any beef with the uh, with the ten players that were named? You know what? I, I don't really have any beef, but it it is pretty crazy that seven of the ten were from three teams, and I think one of the interesting things that stood out to me is that. You, you know, you look at what the best defensive teams in the league were this season. The Lakers were number one in defensive rating, and they didn't have a single person on these all defensive teams. And, I mean, I don't know who that player would have been, really, because I think their two best defenders are probably LeBron and Anthony Davis, and they were injured most of the season. But what that team did, even without those two, was incredibly impressive on that end of the court. And I think the Suns, too, they have some beef with this list, because Mikel Bridges, who... He was on the outside looking in. I think he received the most votes out of the forwards. Oh, sorry, the guards who didn't make it. Um, but I think when you look at how good that team was, they finished sixth in defensive efficiency this season. To not have someone represented on these old defensive teams kind of jumps out. And it reminds me of the Raptors last season. And uh, I think they were the second best defensive team in the league. And they almost had so many good defenders that it was hard to just pick one. Like you could have made a case for Kyle Lowry, Fred Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, even Pascal Siakam. Uh, Mark Gasol, his on-off splits were absolutely insane for that team. And you could probably make a case for him as well. So it, it, it is, those are the teams that I find are really hard. And New York, to be fair as well, I know you've mentioned before kind of uh, there was maybe two a month, two months ago on Slack. You kind of chimed in, was just like, "Why is no one's Noel, like no one's saying no one's Noel's name for all defense?" And I, I think he had a hard path just given the sense of position. But it, it, it is difficult with those teams that are so dominant defensively, and yet not one single player from those teams are represented. So I think for me overall, I don't really have beef with this list. I think. Mikel Bridges, Marcus Smart, and Lou Dort are probably the three that jumped out to me that, you know, had a very good case and didn't end up making it. Um, but I, I have a feeling you're going to say you're not you're not so so high on Matisse Tybel making the second team, aren't you? I'm I'm not. Uh and and and, and I do think he is an all defensive caliber player. Um I just find it uh I just have a tough time giving Matisse Tybel the nod over either Mikel Bridges or Lugensdorp because of the load that he would have had to carry defensively all year long. And he does make a huge impact defensively, uh, but he's also playing with Ben Simmons and he's also playing with Joel Embiid. And I just find it a hard, you know, a tough time to be- make you believe that this is a team that features, 
you know, three of the, the league's you know best defensive players, apparently, um, you know, three of the top ten at least, and they weren't the best defensive team in the league. Um, but and then also he's coming off the bench. I, I do take that into consideration. He is coming off the bench, whereas you know Bridges is starting the game. There's a different story uh, that you can tell with with Mikael Bridges starting the game, and he doesn't have a bunch of defensive you know lockdown defenders surrounding him. You know, we we always laugh at. Um, you know, not anymore, but we, we, we used to laugh at the way that Aiton played defense, and he's his anchor. Um, we used to laugh at the way that Booker plays defense, and, you know, he's there too. So I, I do I, – Mikel Bridges did not miss a single game. Played 72 games all year long, played for a really good team, second-best team in the in the uh, in terms of record, and still didn't get the nod. And then Lou Dort, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed in Lou Dort not making it because of he, he made a name for himself defensively. Um, I do get why, though, because I understand maybe the Thunder kind of tanking the way that they did maybe takes away a little bit of you can't get it. You can't be rewarded by, uh, you know, getting a, an all defensive type player. I do think that he has time to get there. I think he's, you know, he's only 21. Oh, absolutely. So he's going to get there at some point. Um, but I, I would I wouldn't have been mad to see his name uh, get a little bit more love. But I do think that Bridges should have definitely made it over Tybal. Um, no, no question about it. And that's no disrespect to Thibault. I think he is an all-defensive talent, but I just think that you have an easier job when you're coming off the bench in, and, you're, and you're defending guys in certain situations versus starting the game, you're, you're going up against one-on-one, the best defender on the other team, you're playing big minutes against the best defender on the team. It, it's just a difference uh, to me, to me anyway. That's all. And I, I, but I think that's interesting. What's interesting about these teams is that it, it is a reflection of different types of defenders. And I think that's one of the hard things that's to evaluate about defense. Because offensively, you have we have all these different stats. Who's good in pick and roll? Who's good in isolation? Who's a good three-point shooter? Who's good at spot-ups coming off of screens? Like You can categorize offensive players so much easier than you can defensive players. And I think like someone like Lou Dort. Like Lou Dort guards the best player on the opposing team every single night. Um, and he makes life difficult for them. And sure, there's nights when someone is going to light him up, but that just comes with the territory of playing against defending the best players every single night. And I think Matisse Tybel is capable of that. But for me, he is arguably the most disruptive perimeter defender in the league right now. Um, he, he posted a steal rate of 3.9 this season and a block rate of 4.9. Do you want to guess how many times in NBA history a player has posted those numbers in a single season? Go for it. Zero. One, um, Gerald Wallace in 2005-2006. So it's only happened one other time in NBA history, according to StatHead. And it, I mean, Matisse Tybo blocked like the second most threes this season. Um, only Chris Boucher blocked more. And you consider the minutes that he played for him to be that high up in that category. I, I, I just, I, I don't really have a problem with it because I think it, he's just flat out incredible defensively. And he can, he's just an absolute pest. And the, he gets his hands on everything. So for me... It, and this is what's difficult about all defense as well. Like, there's only two teams. There's only 10 right. players. And I think when you look at the players who didn't make it, um, we, we've already kind of talked about this off air. Maybe this isn't the case every single year, but but certainly this year, like the third, if there was a third team all defense, I mean, you, it would have been Mikael Bridges, Marcus Smart, Lou Dort, a Clint Capella, um, and then maybe like a Miles Turner, Julius Randle, OG Ananobi. Like that, that's... You can make the case that they're some of the five best play defenders in the in the league easily. So um, it just speaks to kind of how much talent there is again in the league right now. And it's just it's old defense is really difficult. It really is. So do you think it's time to move for the to, to the uh, 
three teams here because I do. The, there's a there's a, we're getting the All NBA announcement in a, in a matter of hours here, and that will happen on TNT ahead of the uh, the Nets uh, Bucks game. Um, but you, you do think that there's time to move to three and three? I see. I disagree. I do. I do like the exclusivity um, that it does provide uh, when you just have two teams because not every year. This year. I can't make that argument. This year, you could probably fill up four teams uh, if you wanted to, with uh, with with how good some of these players individually have been defensively. But I I don't I don't think that that's going to be the case every year. I think there's some years where you know you're, you're you have a a situation where you're like ah well th- there's a couple of guys that that probably um, really shouldn't even be on this team, but there are they are. See, I, I mean, I, I just like the idea of having three old defensive teams because you have three old NBA teams. And I know there's only two old rookie teams, but we don't need a third old rookie team. But I, I, I mean, I think it's a fun exercise, which is something we can either do another time or off air or whatever. But going through like random years and seeing who other players received votes for all defense, because like I just I just plugged in like 2015, 16, for example, and right. the players who didn't get it were who just missed out were Rudy Gobert. Clay Thompson, Jay Crowder, LeBron James, Kyle Lowry, and Danny Green. Like, I think those are you, certainly some of the best defenders of that position. And I think, yeah, you, you, we're going to look at the end of people's careers like Clay Thompson. I, I can't even remember if he hasn't. How many old, old defensive teams has he he's made? Been, he's been on. He was on 2019, I remember off the top of my head. But um, the fact that he. Okay, so he's made one all defensive second team. Like, that, that's, that's crazy to me. And we've talked about Kyle Lowry before and how good he is defensively. And what? He's never made one, right? Um, right. And, and yeah, again, this is difficult. And like, the best defenders should be rewarded and it should be an exclusive club. But I think if the talent is there for three teams and you can match it up with the all NBA, like, I, I'd, I'd be for it. I'm not. I'm not mad at the two D. I, I like the way it is. I think when you add the third team, you're going to give away participation medals, and that's not what I want to do. By the way, while we're talking about all defensive teams, you, can you guess at the top of your head who the top three are for the most amount of defensive teams of all time? And I'll give you a hint: uh, they all played in the bygone era. None of the guys that you uh, <laughs> they, they played in your, your wheelhouse. It's not. It's not. It's not before your time. It's not. It's not before your time. It's, it is during your wheelhouse. Um, and once I give you the you know the couple, I think you'll take it. Just think of longevity. Think of good defenders. Come, why are you putting me on the spot like this? You know I'm not going to be able to do this. Early, I- early two thousands, early two thousands, longevity, good defenders. Uh, I mean, Tim Duncan's got to be up there, right? Tim Duncan's number one with fifteen uh, total teams. He uh, made it eight times first team, seven times second team. Okay. No defensive player of the year awards, by the way. Um, that's crazy. Um, I mean, I'm assuming that there's got to be like, is Kareem up You're there? in the right era. Kareem's oh, okay. there. He's so, fourth. Kareem's fourth. Uh, you're in the right era, though, with the Tim Duncan. Kareem's fourth. He finished uh, his career with 11 all-defensive team nominations. Five of them were first team. He also never won a Defensive Player of the Year award. Um, but you're in the right era with Oh, Tim KG. Duncan. KG. Kevin, Kevin Garnett is number two with 12. He's actually tied for number two. So maybe Kareem is three because uh, Kevin Garnett is tied for number two with 12. Nine of them coming on the first team. And, of course, he won Defensive Player of the Year his first year in Boston. Um, so it's not like Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen for the for the nope, other one. It's not that era, not that era. Jordan Jordan um, and Scottie um, finished. Scottie finished with ten. Jordan finished with nine. All of them first team for Michael Jordan. Of course, he won Defensive Player of the Year the same year he won the MVP. Scottie ten. Uh, eight of them were first team. Never won Defensive Player of the Year. But you're, you you got to stay in the Tim Duncan Kevin Garnett era. I feel like this is going to be obvious, isn't it? 
It is very obvious. Oh, it's Kobe. Yeah, it's got to be Kobe. Yeah, it's Kobe. Uh, he's 12, so he's tied for second with uh, Kevin Garnett. He also never won Defensive Player of the Year, but nine times first team, three times, of course, second team. Uh, so that is the uh, the only the active leader um, right now in the NBA is Chris Paul with nine um, hmm. defensive player or sorry defensive team nominations. Seven of them first team, uh, two of them of course second team. Never won Defensive Player of the Year. Um, it's funny to see some of the names on this list and how many of them have actually won the Defensive Player of the Year award. Um, as I'm looking at it right now, uh, the top, and you're looking at the top 10, the only ones that have won Defensive Player of the Year is Kevin Garnett, uh, Gary Payton, who had nine uh, all-team, all-defensive team nominations, Michael Jordan, of course, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. and two of them for Akeem Olajuwon. He won uh, Defensive Player of the Year twice in his career. But outside of that, it's uh, Jason Kidd never won it, Dennis Johnson never won it, Bobby Jones never won it, probably should have. Um, and obviously Chris Paul did not either. So that's the, uh, that's the list. It is a tough list to crack and I like it. Um, you know, it's only been around since 1983. So maybe that we do need to update it. It's not like one of these old, uh, old, old time awards that we've given away, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough to make it. Um, it is and I, 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 I do like that. Uh, it also, it also is tough to make the all NBA list. Um, so by the time most people hear this on the podcast side, the names will already be revealed to us. Um, but if you had to guess first team or who would your first team be at this point? Um, we, we didn't make the, uh, the selections this year on NBA.com, but who would your uh, first team be if you had to, uh, to pick it? I feel like it's been so long since we talked about this. I feel like I'm going to forget someone, but I think it's, Luca's up there, Steph's up there, the two guard positions, probably Giannis and Kawhi, and then um, Jokic. I, I don't think yeah, I've, I, I think that's I think that's what we had when we did, we went through ours. Um, I know I know it was, so. it was it was it was Dame Damian Lillard and, and Luca was the one I think we we disagreed on for the first team. Yeah, we we, we did this a, a while ago, and I feel like I forgot mine's. And um, but if I if I had to go now off the spot. Ah, boy, it was. I, I definitely had Steph and, and Dame in my backcourt, I feel like. Yep. I did not have Luca. I think Luca, Luca was, or I had Steph and CP. It was one of the, it was one of the two. I know I had Steph. Um, and then my front court was, uh, was, was Jokic. Um, I want to say Giannis, it was Giannis, and, uh, Kawhi, Giannis it? And, and Kawhi. Yeah, I want to say it was Giannis and Kawhi. So, yeah, that's that was a that was a, a little while ago we did that. Um, by the way, we already spoke about this uh, off the air, but LeBron James leads all players in NBA history with uh, sixteen total uh, All NBA nominations in seventeen seasons. Incredible! He's going to get another one. Uh, spoiler alert <laughs> yeah, this so. year. <laughs> that's, that's pretty pretty good. Kobe with number Kobe finishing two. Uh, he's tied with Kareem and Tim Duncan for that with fifteen. Uh, each uh, the next closest uh, current player um, no one has 10 no one else has 10 uh, in, in terms of uh, all NBA selections as a uh, current player so it'll be interesting that. to see yeah it's uh, will we'll be interesting to see who uh, who can catch LeBron if anyone can catch those who do you think would, would be able to probably Luca he's the only one that uh, yeah. has a shot at it right he's the only one that uh, that could get him yeah, probably. I mean, looking at this list, Kevin Durant's at nine. Uh, I mean, he's not gonna. He played well enough in the games that he did play to obviously be All NBA this season. But I think he missed too much time. And he's he's just not gonna make the list. Chris Paul's at nine. 
Um, James Harden's at seven. I mean, I, I would not be surprised if James Harden's kind of an All NBA All Star caliber player for for a good chunk of time still. But but to catch, I mean, that that's still a lot to make up. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah it's it, and then Steph's at Steph at six. I'm I'm kind of surprised that to be honest. But I know he he's kind of he's, dealt he's with injuries and everything. But yeah. um, it, again, it it just speaks it speaks to how how ridiculous LeBron is and how he's defied Father Time. And also, I know he he dealt with injuries this season, but. It just goes to show, like a Kevin Durant, for example. It's like you miss a ton of games a season for an injury, and that's all it takes for you to not make an All NBA team, even though you're in the prime of your career. Um, and it's, it's again, it's it's really difficult, and you need a lot of good fortune to kind of stick around in this league for as long as obviously LeBron has, but also to just dominate. I mean, ten, even just ten All NBAs, a decade of being one of the top fifteen players in the league. And I know it's not always like that because it's pos- positional based, and sometimes players get squeezed out because there's just more some positions are overloaded but um yeah i mean to to be top 15 player for over a decade is 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 absurd when you put it like that yeah yeah it it really is um very few have uh have done it as greatly as lebron has and he's uh just extending his uh his his lead in the all nba total uh nominations and he'll definitely do that this year we could say that right like uh, there's no chance he doesn't make at least 13 there's no chance he doesn't make at least 13 i don't want to i don't want to come i don't want to listen to this podcast on a wednesday morning and sound like a fool uh because i said lebron james has got to uh to number 17 this year look he played 45 games he played 45 games this season i i I, I I had him on one of our teams. I, I think I had him on my All-NBA second team when we discussed this. I think I had like him and maybe it was Julius Randle actually on the All-Second all team. But I, I mean, I think mm-hmm. it was. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised like if he's not on every single person's All-NBA team who voted. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if he slips to like the third team, for example. But um, I mean, it's, it's he was arguably the front runner and MVP before he got injured. And it's kind of easy to forget that. So, I, I mean, I had him on my All-NBA team. I, I kind of do expect him to make it. But I, I don't think it's like a slam dunk. I don't think it's an absolute given. Well, that's where you and I differ. I definitely think it's a slam dunk. Yes, he. I think we had Jimmy Butler, 40. by the way. I think we had Jimmy we Butler, did. second team with LeBron. And then Julius Randle. And then I can't remember who we had as the other forward on the third team. But um, I think that's yeah. what it was. Yeah, we we I think we disagreed about that. I had Jimmy Butler on mine uh, as a guard, and, and it was it was weird. But anyway, um, if LeBron's not on the team, we'll uh, we'll just wear well. I will wear egg in our face. Uh, you you kind of just <laughs> stepped out of the uh, the line of fire there for for that. Um, next week we'll be back uh, ahead of the draft lottery with uh, with a ton of news around the draft. Uh, we'll know who the, who's in the conference finals by that point. Uh, there'll be game sevens uh, that won't go beyond this weekend, so we'll know who's in the conference finals by the next time we speak to you if you missed any part of the show you can catch us on the podcast and a reminder if you want to catch us live you can listen to us across the nba global networks uh over on nba.com in canada india and australia and also make sure you check out nba.com we have everything leading up to the draft lottery and also everything going on in the nba postseason for scott rafferty i am carlin gay we will see you next week right here 3 p.m eastern noon pacific on nba sound system